We're in a little series called Engaging the Spirit in Spirituality. And what we're doing is we're taking a look at some of the treasures of that sector of Christianity which is specialized in the Holy Spirit, which is the Pentecostal sector of Christianity. As you can see, we have lots of different sectors of Christianity represented in our, in our worship. These icons are from the Eastern Orthodox tradition. We have communion every week like Catholics and Episcopalians do. We've got some things in our, in our service that we've lifted from our Episcopalian friends. And, um, and we also, we have worship songs that often come from the charismatic or Pentecostal tradition. Emily and I both have a lot of experience in that sector of Christianity. And so we're trying to get like underneath some of the, like some of these practices that so many of us feel odd or weird. Like what's, what's going on behind it? We're, what's the good that um, is meant to be percol percolating up through these um, practices. Uh, and today I'm going to hit uh, speaking in tongues and loud vocalizations. Uh, thank you. Um, but I want to just say a word about curiosity. Curiosity is essential for spirituality. Fear and defensiveness kills spirituality. Curiosity is essential for spirituality. So if you're in a religious system that is threatened by curiosity, or threatened by hard questions, or poking, or prodding, that's not a good sign. Um, and by the same token, when we encounter practices in any spiritual tradition that seem odd to us, it's, it's just like a natural instinct to just dis dismiss things that seem odd to us because they're unfamiliar to us and they make us feel stupid because we don't understand them. So we just, we just dismiss them without examination. It's so much more rewarding to be curious and to ask, well, what's the possible good behind this practice? And today, it's like I mentioned, uh, what's the good behind pra the practices that are there that are paradigmatic that are, that are like essential in Pentecostalism, speaking in tongues and loud vocalizations. Don't worry, I'm not going to be getting you whipped up. I'm going to be giving you some brain science on speaking in tongues and I'm going to give you a recorded example of a vocalization that sounds very much like speaking in tongues. It's going to be interesting today, oh my Lord. <laughs> have you ever noticed the um, connection between the power we have and the freedom we feel? to speak up. The power we have in any situation and then the freedom we feel in that situation to speak up. Have you ever noticed, maybe especially these days, the powerful won't shut up or stop tweeting <laughs> while countless others are struggling to find their voice or be heard. You know, a, a woman doing a great job uh, finds it hard to ask for a raise compared to her male counterparts. A gay child struggles to tell his religious parents who he really is. A newly married man uh, blows another chance to speak up when his father-in-law makes another racist remark. Or oh, after five years together, a couple finds that they have like a handful of things they need to talk about, but they can't find a way, they can't find the words to do it. 
So the Gospel of Luke, as we mentioned last Sunday, is our introduction to the work of the Holy Spirit for Gospels in what we call the New or Newer Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And Luke, in particular, is concerned about the role of the Holy Spirit, also the author of the Acts of the Apostles, sometimes called the Acts of the Spirit, the work of the Spirit in the earliest Jesus movement. And the Gospel of Luke opens, as we talked about last Sunday, with an angel, which is a big deal, appearing to a priest in the temple, in the holy place every now and again, maybe a few times in his lifetime, this priest would have the honor of serving as a priest in the holy place. And this, this guy's name is Zechariah. When an angel comes to him while he's doing his priestly duty, uh, the angel says, the angel's Gabriel, which is like a big deal, angel, and your wife in her old age, Elizabeth, will bear a child, a son, who will be filled with the Spirit. Zechariah doesn't believe Gabriel's message, and the angel takes offense, pushes Z's mute button until John is born, as a matter of fact. So the first man who has an encounter with a divine kind of experience is muted. Hallelujah! That's a good sign, and there's more to come along those lines. Then the same angel, Gabriel, appears to Mary announcing her child to be named Jesus. So, so far in Luke, we're still in the first uh, half of the long first chapter of Luke, angels, angels are telling future parents that their offspring will be filled with the Spirit. We're just like, it's like... It's like building anticipation. Who is the Spirit? What does the Spirit do when the Spirit comes on a person? The plot thickens, and Luke now shows us the Spirit herself. And I'm using the feminine pronoun because of the Jewish background that that would uh, suggest that the Spirit was experienced as the divine manifestation, uh, uh, the feminine manifestation of God. That's last week. You missed it. If you missed, you missed a good one. It's a little bit long. I looked at how long it was. I'm sorry. Try to be shorter. But Luke is showing the spirit finally like filling an actual human being, a person. And that person is Elizabeth in her sixth month of pregnancy with her cousin Mary, much younger, visiting her from Nazareth. Um, with a, and Mary is uh, newly with child and, and uh, Elizabeth is in the beginning of her third trimester. I'm not going to find it in The Hate You Give. Um, I'm going to find it in this here book is the New Testament. If you need a New Testament, the study Bible New Testament, get the Jewish annotated New Testament. Amy Jill Levine, everyone who reads the New Testament and studying it needs this version, I'm telling you. A, a feminist, Orthodox Jew, New Testament scholar who knows the New Testament inside out. She's, she's Jewish. She's not Messianic Jewish. She's, and the, the notes are to die for. So valuable. Okay, a little nerd moment there I had to indulge. In those days, Mary set out and went with haste to a Judean town in the hill country where she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. Elizabeth is Zechariah's wife. Zechariah is the guy in the temple with the meat button on until the baby is born. When Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the child leaped in her womb, in Elizabeth's womb, And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit and exclaiming with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women and blessed is the fruit of your womb. Speaking to Mary, and why has this happened to me that the mother of my Lord comes to me? 
For as soon as I heard the sound of your greeting, the child in my womb leaped for joy, and blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her by the Lord. That's Elizabeth's first words as she is filled with the Spirit. Mm. I remember my math teacher doing this, licking her thumb on a page, and I said, I never ever want to do that. It seems like what an old person does. <laughs> Just to pause here. Powerful events in the Jewish tradition often come um, with human pairs. So Adam and Eve, Abraham and Sarah, uh, Jacob and Esau, uh, Ruth and Naomi. And the idea is that at, we, are, we carry the image of God within us as human beings, and so we can mirror uh, spirit. We can mirror the spirit to each other. We can, we can catch the spirit from each other. And so Luke is introducing the spirit with another pairing, Elizabeth and Mary. The very first time the spirit comes on a person in Luke's gospel, what happens? And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit and proclaimed with a loud cry. So filled is the, is the verb there. She was filled with the Spirit. Um, water fills a glass. Light fills a room. Spirit fills a person. Elizabeth was the one who was filled. She is an old woman who has borne the stigma of infertility. In the ancient world, it was always that stigma was always on women. They didn't know about doing sperm counts and all that kind of stuff. The man never was, you know, had any stigma related to that. And she was filled to what end? Elizabeth was filled with the Spirit and proclaimed with a loud cry. And her loud cry, as I read at the beginning of her thing was involves blessing another woman a younger woman who's bearing a different stigma of pregnancy out of wedlock do you think any of this is accidental in Luke do you think it's accidental that when the angel comes to Zechariah the priest who has all the power and the privilege the angel pushes the mute button and then his wife speaks up in this way when she's filled with the Spirit. All this is happening in a world run by men that control women by controlling their bodies and keeping them quiet. Mary, who's witnessing Elizabeth filled with the Spirit, also cries out in a loud voice. And Mary is maybe, I don't know, 16, 17, maybe? It's like the Spirit jumps from this older woman, Elizabeth, and now the Spirit jumps to Mary, and man, does Mary let loose. My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has looked with favor on the lowliness of his servant, me. Surely, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. This is called chutzpah. <laughs> For the mighty one has done great things, and holy is God's name. And she's not done. She's not even halfway through. 
His mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the powerful from their thrones and lifted up the lowly. He has filled the hungry with good things and sent the rich away empty. He has held his servants Israel in remembrance of his mercy according to the promise he made to our ancestors, to Abraham and to his descendants forever. And Mary remained with her about three months and then returned to her home. Where we haven't heard a word yet from Joseph. (laughs) He's just like, Mary just went off. (laughs) Something's going on here in Luke, isn't it? Um, something's going on. I'm, I'm studying this up. I'm studying up on Thursday. I'm studying up. I'm reading it. I'm like, oh, man, I'm getting a feeling. I'm getting a feeling about this. This Mary song is reminding me of something. What is it? And then that's like Greta Thunberg. You know, Greta Thunberg, a prophet denouncing powerful elders for their abuse of the planet, refusing to make it right for future generations. I mean, you, have you heard this young woman who, who has autism. And to me, it's like the gift of like neuroatypical brains that she just has a way of speaking and not caring about the feelings of those who are hearing her words because she has a truth to tell. And I just, I love listening to that. And, and all, the, all the white liberals that are gathered to listen to her clap for her. And then she just goes off on them. Like, what are you doing about this? I don't want your applause and your awards. And... And then it reminds, well, it's reminded me of something else because uh, Carla recommended I read this book, uh, The Hate You Give. We're, we're, um, at Carla's recommendation, we're making it our Lenten read. We're doing the little Sarm prayer book for a daily devotional. And then this like uh, discipleship read, The Hate You Give. It's a young adult novel. I, I hadn't read a no- young adult novel and I wanted to. And I heard about this as a movie by the same, um, uh, about, based on the book. And this book is uh, by Angie Thomas about a young woman, 16 years old, black woman star, who witnesses her childhood friend uh, shot by police, unarmed, naturally, shot by police in a traffic stop. And the courage that she is given to speak up on her friend's uh, behalf, and it's a, it's a very powerful read, so that's going to be our Lenten read. So it's like Mary is, Mary's keep popping up, you know. Mary is a woman like these two uh, contemporary examples. Did you know that Mary's song is considered so incendiary, we call it the Magnificat in the church. You've heard that, Magnificat. Uh, There's different sung versions of it. It's very, very pious kind of thing. Uh, So incendiary that it's been banned, actually, at different times by different um, dictatorships. Um, India banned it in little sectors during the colonial rule of the British Empire. Um, Guatemala, there are reports that Guatemalan dictators uh, banned it for a time. Argentina, uh, same thing. It was just like it's it's too explosive. It's too subversive. Luke 4, two chapters down, Jesus is preaching for the first time in his hometown synagogue where he aff- he's affirming the tongue-loosening work of the Spirit. I got to get kind of Anna reading today and like the Spirit was loosening her tongue, you know? Like it's a big deal when you're that age to be like speaking to a group of adults and reading. And she had that reading down, but she was like struggling through some fear and she was 
Spirit was given her what she needed, loosening her tongue. Um, anyway, Jesus is preaching in Luke 4. It's his first like preaching. It's in his hometown synagogue. He opens the, um, the reading is from Isaiah uh, that day. And he, he reads and he applies it to him. The Spirit of the Lord is on me says Jesus, quoting Isaiah. His mother taught him that you've got to you know, stand for yourself, believe in yourself, she did. The Spirit of the Lord is on me and has anointed me to bring good news to the poor, to proclaim release to the prisoners, recovery of sight to the blind, to let the oppressed go free and proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. He's really affirming the work of the Spirit that began on that um, Elizabeth Mary pair of the tongue loosening. Uh, this is like, look for this. When you're looking for, where's the genuine work of the Spirit happening? And it's happening with people who, especially without power, on the wrong end of the power stick, are empowered to speak truths that they weren't able to speak before. That's what Luke is trying to frame the Holy Spirit as in terms of a primary purpose of the Spirit not unrelated to the gift of speaking in tongues and loud vocalizations. We'll get that in just a minute. So Edie Wasink, uh, pastor, colleague, friend of uh, Emily and I, Edie served on our, uh, on our um, church board as a, as a non-member when we first got uh, planted in 2015. We had a couple of pastors, Edie and uh, Deborah Dean Ware from the uh, Church of the Good Shepherd down the street here, served on our board. And... Um, uh, Emily and I are both friends with Edie. Edie's about, um, I don't know, about, she's a woman of a certain age. I don't think I probably should mention it. I'm going to tell Edie I shared this. I'm not going to mention her age. She's younger than me. Um, she was the first woman pastor in our old denomination. She endured years of being shushed by male colleagues. She was literally yelled at in a public in a group setting by a regional leader, a man, for like making trouble. Um, she endured this, let alone being condescended to or ignored or being in the room where the male pastors, and she's a pastor with a church bigger than many of the churches, the men pastors in the room, you know, blah, 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 and every, you know, whoever's leading it is only making con eye contact with the male pastors, and she's like invisible. She, you know, you will understand how it goes. Um, and she endured that. Um, but in that fiery furnace, and this went on for some years, the Spirit gave, oh, let me get tell you this story. Um, uh, theoretically, you couldn't have a senior pastor who was a woman in this denomination. And so, Edie was the founding pastor. Church started in their living room, grew to be substantial size. And as it grew, and it was time to like ordain the leader of the thing from the denomination. The regional leader says to her, oh, Edie, we know that you're the one really in charge around here, but put your husband Tom's name on the paperwork. Yeah. So, Edie gets a PhD in, uh, in uh, divinity or theology or whatever. When, when you're the master of divinity, I think that's pretty high. But uh, no, this is a PhD in something else. Anyway, she did her dissertation on the obstacles women face on the road to religious equality. You know, research and oh my Lord. She left that denomination. She transitioned that church to, uh, uh, from, that she built from scratch to full LGBT inclusion. And now she's writing a take-no-prisoners book to tell the behind-the-scenes story. 
Adi's found her voice. <laughs> the Spirit's given Adi her voice. This is the work of the Spirit to loosen tongues that have been constrained, condescended to, shushed, silenced. So this is a discernment test for us. You know, when you see religious settings where men pump up their male privilege starting on stage or Twitter, whipping up a crowd, pressuring people to fall over or speak in tongues or whatever, all to boost their own power and popularity, you are not seeing the real thing. That is not the real thing. You are witnessing the abuse of spiritual power. Who was the original spirit pair when the modern Pentecostal movement surprised everyone at the beginning of the 20th century. I mentioned this last week. Agnes Osmond, a single woman who was the first like, modern person to speak in tongues like happened in the New Testament era. She spoke in a Chinese dialect for five days straight and couldn't speak English. It was like a shazam. Um, and then a few... Uh, years later, a brilliant black leader named William Seymour uh, started preaching, um, you know, uneducated, how could he be, in, in whatever that was, 1906. But his preaching sparked what would become the world's fastest growing religion today. Agnes Osmond, William Seymour, the spirit loosened their tongues. That that's like the real thing at work. Agnes Osmond and William Seymour, not to put too fine a point on it, would not in a million years be invited to the White House, would not in a million years attend a prayer breakfast with a president wrapping himself in a Christian flag while he's mocking, literally, the way of Jesus as his compliant, you know, Christian enablers sit by. They wouldn't be found in a setting like that. So let's briefly, thank you, I got that off my chest. It's a bad week. <laughs> let's briefly talk about the gift of tongues. Uh, and then loud vocalizations will be done. New York Times um, reported, I think this was in, I don't know, was it 2007 or so, reported on a study on speaking in tongues that was done at the University of Pennsylvania by a researcher named Andrew Newberg, who, you know, did um, brain imaging on um, um, people who were speaking in tongues and then singing and then compared the two. And uh, I got the abstract for the, for the study, science nerd that I am, and the abstract, which is like the initial paragraph that summarizes the research at the beginning, um, says glossolalia, or speaking in tongues, is an unusual mental state that has great personal and religious meaning. Glossolalia is experienced as a normal and expected behavior in religious prayer groups in which the individual appears to be speaking in an incomprehensible language. This is the first functional neuroimaging study to demonstrate changes in cerebral activity during glossolalia. The frontal lobes, parietal lobes, and left caudate were most affected. Isn't that interesting? The study showed that there was de decreased activity in the frontal lobe, which is like the concentrated thought part of the brain, there was decreased activity there during a person speaking in tongues. 
and there was some increased activity in some of the emotion um, mediating regions of the brain. And now again, I'm quoting from the article. The authors suggest these findings may indicate a loosening, listen to the language, a loosening of control over language functions in the brain, potentially leading to production of apparently unstructured language that the participants experience as somewhat outside their control. Isn't that interesting? How many people have heard speaking in tongues in some kind of a worship center? That's a lot of people hearing speaking in tongues. If you are interested in what it sounds like, you can ask someone who raised their hand, but I'm also going to play you a little, little snippet. This is especially important to note. This is again from the article. Contrary to what may be common perception, studies suggest that people who speak in tongues rarely suffer from mental problems. Hallelujah. A recent study of nearly 100 Christians in England found that those who engaged in the practice were more emotionally stable than those who did not. Nah, 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 nah. <laughs> Researchers have identified at least two forms of the practice, one ecstatic and frenzied, the other subdued and nearly silent. Broad range here. So I think of it like this, like speaking and thinking are closely connected, right? And, and you all know what it's like when you're like trying too hard to think or to s speak something that's complicated or that you're struggling with and how when you think too hard, you just get yourself into a rabbit hole and it's, it's almost like you freeze up when you're thinking too hard. I see speaking in tongues is like a freer way of speaking that's not tied to thinking. So it'd be like a basketball player who's in the zone. You know, a basketball player in the zone is not thinking, well, I'll do this and I'll do that. And it's, it's like they're in flow, as the psychologists call it. So speaking in tongues is a kind of flow experience with verbalizations. Um, I, I like to use it when I don't know how to pray or when I need to release like mental tension that I can't think my way through. And um, I, I usually do that when I'm walking or in the car. And I like having ear pods on so people think I'm talking to somebody. And I might be from a different country or something like that. So it works. It's really easy these days in private settings to, to speak in tongues if you'd like to. What does it sound like, you may ask? No, I'm not going to demonstrate right here. But I did do that with my therapist. Um, just to check myself out. Uh, I, found, I found Ashila Chandra as... Uh, just some really interesting music. And she does some um, vocalizations that are not a known speech. And it, it sounds a lot like speaking in tongues. I'd say it's a little more clipped. Um, uh, she's kind of a virtuoso tongue speaker, I would say. Um, but listen, listen to this. We'll give it about uh, 30 seconds. This is a performance. <laughs> Wasn't that fun? <laughs> this just sounds cool, doesn't it? You can, uh, you can find that Sheila uh, Chandra. It's the name of the song, and she does it in, in uh, performance uh, settings, is uh, speaking in tongues. Um, so that's speaking in tongues, give you a little flavor. Um, loud vocalizations. 
Um, so I think Emily is going to talk about the Pentecostal gift of praise. But when I say loud vocalizations, I mean raising your voice as a spiritual practice. Um, uh, so Carla, Carla gave the announcements today. She's our board uh, president. Carla's wife, Sharonda, um, is a very spiritual woman. And she gave me a spiritual practice to try, um, knowing my cultural background and learning holes. And she said, um, Ken, I want you to read the verses of the African-American National Anthem and then sing or shout them out in, in like a private space until you can feel the lyrics of the African-American National Anthem. I looked it up. I, I, I got it. Alexa was playing it for me. Um, Sharonda also posted something recently on Facebook. Um, it was great for... Black History Month, February. Slavery is white history. How we survived it is black history. Right? Okay. So if you want to get a feel for this reality of loud vocalizations, you know, it's, it's not enough to read the verses to the African American National Anthem. You need to listen to it sung by a black choir, like loud volume. And then you go into a room and you close the door and you either sing out or you speak the verse in a loud voice. It has to be a loud voice for you to feel it. And then maybe you do that every day for a week. This would be a great thing to do actually during Lent. Um, um, the African American National Anthem, Mary's Song, these things require um, loud vocalizations. So, I was, my wife is uh, an Episcopal priest and she was in charge of the transitions from the, um, one bishop to the new bishop in the Diocese of Michigan. Did I mention she's a muckety-muck and I'm her husband? So I was involved in all the behind-the-scenes thing and the Episcopals, they had their big thing on, on Saturday at uh, uh, somewhere in Dearborn, like 2,000 people are showing up. And I mean, they had four processions. If I showed you the program, the program looks like an encyclopedia. It's like, there's a lot going on. It was like four hours. And Michael Curry was there, the presiding bishop, I believe the first African-American presiding bishop of the Episcopal Church, who was famous for the, the uh, royal wedding that he did recently. He's getting a little more, I love that man. He's I saw him in the hall and I was starstruck. Here I am, I'm 67 years old. I'm starstruck by this guy across the district. I say, hello, I love you. <laughs> and he's like, it seems like a lot for a first date, you know. And like, um, so, so Michael Perry is there. Um, the first African-American bishop of the Diocese of Michigan is retired, w w Wendell Gibbs. He's transferring the mitre and the hat and everything to um, Bishop Bonnie Ann Perry, who's the first lesbian bishop in the Episcopal Church, who's a diocesan bishop. This is a, this is a big deal. She's awesome. I, I, I love her. Um, and, and the right Reverend Jennifer Baskerville Burroughs, who's, a, who's the first bishop in the Episcopal Church who was a woman who got the bishop's crook or, you know, the transfer from another woman. So things are happening. She's African-American. She, she did the, the preaching, the homily. Oh, my sweet baby Jesus. This was the, 
I wish you could have heard this. It was on the, on the uh, Jesus walking on the water and the waves and all that kind of stuff. It was one of the best unpackings of that text I have ever heard. And waves are an energy transfer. And she was calling out what's going on in our national scene this day and the need for Episcopalians to rise up and let go of some of their privilege and let go. Let, let go. I mean, I was like, I was starting to cry in the middle of the sermon. And this is not like a normal thing that happens in Episcopalian homilies and she's done and I'm like <gasps> and everyone was just being very white and they were being very Episcopal and <laughs> and I'm and I, I couldn't help myself I just go yes and I yell out yes and then someone else in the crowd goes, makes a loud vocalization and then a few people started to clap and I said, now's my moment. I go, yes, yes, and then amen. And, and you know, there were a few of us like <laughs> through the crowd and people are standing up and it's like it was the only appropriate response. And, and, and the Episcopalians needed that energizing, you know, that, I mean, if you understand that they're, they're like organized around not being enthusiastic about things, you know, <laughs> like, uh, and it was like, oh my Lord, that was just, that was the best liturgical thing I've ever been at. This is, um, this is in the Bible. Because the needy are oppressed and the poor cry out in misery, I will rise up, says the Lord, and give them the help they long for. I mean, so many of the Psalms are framed as loud vocalizations. Jesus himself in the letter to the Hebrews chapter 5 or 7, during the days of Jesus' life on earth, he offered up prayers and petitions with loud cries and tears to the one who could save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverent submission. So loud vocalizations are like, you can yell at God and it's reverent. And, and so there is a place for this. And so um, I say, especially if you're out, out and about, or you're hearing something, and you like I do this when I hear stuff on the news. I just I loud vocalization, and it 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 really helps. And you know that if you like you hit your uh, hit the uh, your finger with a hammer, and you yell out and you cuss, the pain goes away faster than if you just go. <laughs> so. Like there's something in our biology where loud vocalizations are just important and necessary. Time for our quiet reflection. What has Ken cooked up for the quiet reflection today? Well, I've been enjoying Bobby McFerrin lately, and he has an album called Circle Songs. And this circle song is where someone gets in the middle, gets into a key, and then says a few sounds, and then the people in the circle mirror off of that, and it's like a spontaneous, extemporaneous vocalization. Many traditional cultures do this, and Bobby McFerrin is the master of it. He's got a whole album called Circle Songs. Sounds. He writes this about the circle songs. Um, I think of them as language beyond words, because he's not using, like, English. I found that if I sang a line using the consonants, vowels, shadings, and inflection we recognize as human language sounds, people responded as if I were talking to them. He's not speaking in English, he's just using consonants and vowels and sounds, and he did this in singing, and, and people liked it. There is a human connection even though there are no words. If I sing, you broke my heart, you left me flat, everyone knows exactly what that means. They know the story. 
But if I sing a line that's plaintive or wailing, people can experience their own set of emotions and their own story. Each of us might give that phrase a different meaning. It's open to interpretation, and one song becomes a thousand songs. I love that. So this is what Bobby McFerrin is doing with this. So what, I, what I'd suggest, we'll listen to it for um, maybe a couple of minutes. And um, you might just want to begin by realizing that all of us as human beings, we have, there's some unresolved issues or concerns we have that we haven't been able to think our way through. And more thinking is not going to get there. And just imagine your heart as having a few of those things going on. Think of your heart as the center of your chest center of your being and just as we um, put the music on I'm going to invite you to just imagine a beam of light coming from outside of you that would be pleasant shining into your heart from outside so you, you you're closing your eyes you're listening to the music you're picturing a beam of light shining into your heart knowing that you've got these some of these unresolved issues this is not about thinking this is just about getting some other powers working in your heart. And if you'd like to, you could pick out one or two lines from the Sarum prayer and then just kind of chant that while you're listening to the music. You could do, God be in my mouth and in my speaking, or God be in my heart and in my thinking. Okay, so we're listening to the music. We're picturing light shining into our heart, knowing that we've got these unresolved issues. And if we'd like to, just over and over say, God be in my mouth and in my speaking, or God be in my heart and in my thinking, you can add that, or just listen. Let's go ahead. Thank you. 